Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up today, a listen back to my conversation with Arnaldo Castillo, executive chef and owner of the Peruvian pop-up La Chingana. Plus, Emory's annual Jazz Fest is starting today, and City Lights host Lois Reitzes recently got the lowdown. But first, a spotlight on an event that benefits a really great cause. According to an annual report released by the Alzheimer's Association, 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and this report is even more devastating for people of color in our country. The Dementia Spotlight Foundation is dedicated to fighting the disease by educating, supporting, and providing resources for patients and their families. Tomorrow, Friday, February 4th, at the Buckhead Theater, the foundation is holding a benefit concert to help families and individuals living with dementia-related diseases. The executive director of the Dementia Spotlight Foundation, Whitney Altman, along with the director of development and special events, Vince Albert Zangaro, recently joined Lois via Zoom. They were also joined by one of Friday's performers, the one and only speech from the Grammy award-winning band Arrested Development. Whitney Altman began their conversation by explaining the history behind the foundation. We were founded in 2017, following the diagnosis of my father um, at the age of 65. Following his diagnosis and our search to find resources to help with his care, we just couldn't, my mother and I just couldn't quite find what we needed. And um, hence, we started the foundation. Hmm. And Vince, how did you come up with the idea for the Alzheimer's Music Fest? Um, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when he was 62 and I was 29, a aspiring musician and living in that world so long and being a caregiver for about five, six years into it. I got a little frustrated of the lack of support that was out there for dementia families and people living with dementia. And so it was kind of just a natural ability of mine to bring a bunch of bands together and start a fest to try to help people get respite care at home and provide awareness for Alzheimer's and dementia related diseases. Such a horrid disease. It steals the mind and the body and then the life and it doesn't discriminate about age. 
What sort of support and educational opportunities does DSF provide those in need? One of the big things that I think does set us apart is we provide a lot of support for caregivers and the person that is actually living with dementia. We do online support groups, but we also do in-person, we call them connection cafes. A lot of people know them as memory cafes, and it's a it's really, truly a fun, wonderful time for a caregiver and their person to be together and to socialize. We have learned that socialization is such an important part of this disease, of something that you can keep doing. So those are two of our big things. And we also help educate the community. That's one really big mission of ours is to, to educate the communities on dementia-friendly, dementia-capable communities. And with that, it's really involving every community sector and educating them on what dementia is and how as a community we can support people to live as long as they can within the community. And, you know, one of our proudest things is starting with our law enforcement and first responders. We do a lot of training with them as well. This is the festival's ninth annual show. Speech, your group, Arrested Development, is one of the headliners of the music festival. For listeners who may not be familiar with the famous Grammy Award-winning group. Would you give us an overview? Yeah, sure. So we're a group that started here in Atlanta in 1991. We dropped our first uh, single called Tennessee, and we dropped our first album three years, five months and two days in the life of in 1992. As you said, it won Grammys, MTV Awards. We did really well, sold about four million albums. And we've been touring and releasing music ever since. It's a hip-hop group. It's a conscious hip-hop group. We tend to address issues like homelessness, Afrocentric ideas and and philosophies. And somehow or another, it all still sounds very fun and lighthearted. So (laughs) that's that's sort of our thing. Yeah. And you've shared the stage with some very impressive people over the years. Nelson Mandela and President Obama, to name two. What can you tell us about those experiences? Life-changing. I mean, you know, we went to South Africa in 1994, I want to say, and Nelson Mandela was released from prison recently. The apartheid was dismantled, and the people were in a state of shock for how long apartheid existed in their world and how huge of an impact it had on everyone's life. And now it was changing. So there was a mixture of shock and hope. A lot of um, people were really hoping for so many things to change under the leadership of Nelson Mandela. I had a chance with my group to speak right before Nelson Mandela, meet him and donate money to the ANC. We had always been keeping our sort of view on what the ANC was doing in South Africa. We always we're encouraging corporations to divest from supporting this apartheid regime. And so to see it all sort of come to fruition and um, be there with Nelson Mandela was absolutely life-changing. Oh, I can imagine. And President Obama? President Obama, same difference, life-changing. You know, as a Black person in this world and in this nation in particular, I never thought I'd see a Black president in my lifetime. Racism is very thick. It's very real. Despite the the progress we've made, there's still so far to go. And so we never thought we would see that. And to be able to see someone like Barack and uh, Michelle 
we wanted to contribute to his campaign. And so one of the ways we could do that was to perform. We performed with him, Oprah, and it was outstanding. And to see that, you know, for the first time in a long time, a Black man had a chance to become the first president, first Black president of this nation. To see it actually happen was on a whole nother level too. So yeah, it's just amazing. Transformative. You mentioned your commitment to social justice issues. Music for worthwhile causes is central to your work. Why is it important for you to perform at this benefit concert? That's a great question. For me, it was an opportunity to educate people. So through music, you know, which we just do our songs. We don't do songs about Alzheimer's or anything, but through music, a lot of people pay attention. They turn their head to an issue or whatever we're striving to spotlight. And no pun intended, this organization literally has the word spotlight in it. And we wanted to be a part to bring that spotlight on this issue. So we're seeing it already have an effect. You know, we know that Alzheimer's affects and dementia affects Black people here in this nation in, in a higher rate and ratio than other races. And we really want people to feel empowered. So this is a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. Your new album, which was just released, called For the FKN Love, how do you combine nostalgia of the 90s while also addressing current issues? For me, doing the nostalgia thing was a conscious decision. I'm 53 years old, and I come from a particular era in hip-hop that has a particular joy involved with it. You know, the, the early 90s has, we call it boom bap, and it was really heavy on the kick and the snare and rhyme skills and just unique originality. And so we didn't want to abandon that as we wrote new music and try to be like young kids who are, you know, one third or whatever our age. You know, we wanted to be able to keep and maintain the integrity of the music that we loved when we first started, but just bring new songs out and new energy and new new issues. Whitney Orphans, I know that studies have shown music can invoke memories for patients with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Listening to music can also reduce agitation and improve behavioral issues that are common in middle stages of the disease. Was that one of your reasons for creating the festival? I would say absolutely. And, you know, there's a story with, as, as you've learned about Vince's, how he started the fest. We both kind of came together. This is the ninth annual music fest and Vince threw this before um, he joined Dementia Spotlight Foundation. And so when we met, that was one of our most common things was my love for music and knowing um, I listened to music with um, my father a lot before he passed. Being a musician myself, having my friends over with violins and trumpets, especially those kind of um, harmony sort of instruments, you would literally see my dad light up where at that point he was not verbal anymore very broken sentences, did not speak much. And you could even see where um, I almost used, like if I wrote a song, I almost used, well, this is not a good song if this is not getting my dad going. <laughs> this might be a little <laughs> off the bat's not smiling. So he, it was always a good indicator 
when I wrote something and he heard it with the trumpets and violin. And when he felt that and you saw a smile on his face, you knew that it was actually activating his brain. It was pretty amazing to see. To me, I think music can cure anyone's soul and heal our soul and it helps people engage more. Dementia Spotlight Foundation Executive Director Whitney Oltman, along with their Director of Development and Special Events, Vince Albert Zangaro. They were speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes, and of course, they were joined by one of the performers in tomorrow night's event, Speech of Arrested Development. The ninth annual Alzheimer Music Festival is indeed tomorrow, February 4th, at the Buckhead Theater. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Also, check this out. Speech is hosting WABE's new monthly concert series, Sounds Like ATL, at City Winery next week. What a fantastic coincidence. You can find more information and get tickets at wabe.org slash events slash sounds like ATL. In a moment, get ready to get hungry as we listen back to my conversation with celebrated Atlanta chef Arnaldo Castillo. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Arnaldo Castillo is no stranger to Atlanta's food scene. From Empire State South to Little Trouble, his cooking skills have been honed all over town. Most recently, Castillo was executive chef at Ponce City Markets Monero, but he's since gone solo with his new Peruvian pop-up, La Chingana. Castillo's pop-ups range from four-course meals to takeaway, but they're always served with a heaping side of history and laced with stories of Lima and northern Peru, where he and his family are from. When Arnaldo and I spoke this past summer, he began by explaining how he ended up in the U.S. at six years old. In the early 90s, there was a lot of domestic terrorism happening in Lima and the economic situation, the political situation was just really tough on our family. And my dad decided, well, my family decided to move to the States. And my dad was the first one that immigrated in the early nineties. And then we just followed suit. Was it a fair amount of time between him leaving and and you arriving? Yeah. I probably didn't see him for four years or so. He moved to New York and, you know, he, he had a restaurant in Lima with my, one of my 
uncles and he you know was in new york crashing on his friend's couch and then got a job as, as a cook in a peruvian restaurant and he did that for about four years and then it wasn't until like i think 95 that i came with my mom wow i know that's very common for an immigration story but it just speaks so highly of your dad to take on that burden and must have been hard on your family to be apart for that long yeah definitely definitely was and you know, we decided that, uh, I say we, but my, my parents decided that it was best for the kids to go to Buda, where my mom is from. This is a state in northern Peru. And it was going to be the best situation for us to go up there and just live and be with family up there. So even though my dad was gone for the time being to help support us in Peru, I have only the best memories in Buda. That's wonderful. So you mentioned that your father cooked and mm -hmm. got a job in a Peruvian restaurant. Is it safe to assume that's where your love of cooking came from? Yeah, that was sort of the way that I was born into it, so to speak. You know, he had a restaurant in Lima, but, you know, I was a baby, so I, I, don't, I wasn't really around it much. Um, but it was when I finally got to the States and was able to sort of observe how my dad was working and his love for Peruvian food. And I, I just kind of fell into that, you know. My parents eventually had this home business and they were basically making food for all the uh, Peruvians in Gwinnett, I want to say. Oh, wow. So, we, you know, we were known in like the little small Peruvian community as the family that would cater and provide Peruvian food for people. And so that was very, that was an interesting experience for me because growing up, I never saw myself as wanting to be a chef or a cook. I just naturally fell into it, you know. So when you did first start cooking, did you start with Peruvian dishes? No, my first cooking job was actually at this restaurant in Midtown called Taqueria. Fusion restaurant of like Korean meets Mexican. And it's funny that that's how I started my cooking career. And then I ended it at a Mexican restaurant uh, in Ponce City Market, Monero as the executive chef still making tacos. <laughs> one of the, one of my favorite <laughs> foods to not only make and, and share with people, but to eat, you know, <laughs> you rose to executive chef level there pretty quickly, right? Yeah. I came in as a sous chef in January of 2017. And by the end of the year, I was chef de cuisine. And then once chef Sean Brock left the group, I became the executive chef of the restaurant. Wow. And so what has made you decide to pivot and look forward to opening up your own place? I just wanted to share. I want to share Peruvian food with Alana and do it in a way that's sustainable and, and modern and fresh. I want to take the experiences that I got from working in all these fine dining establishments and casual establishments and just sort of come up with a model where the food is going to be approachable and sustainable, meaning that we're going to work with as many local purveyors and farmers to introduce Peruvian food in a way that also intersects with our region, you know, like, what does Peruvian food look like in the South? That's sort of like mm. the question that I've been imposing on myself. So what is Peruvian food in the South? What have you come up with? One of the things that I've learned in doing these pop-ups is I've been able to learn a lot, a lot about the culture and the history of Peruvian food just from all the research that I've been doing. I was born there and I was there until I was six, but I grew up with an American culture. And when I started doing these pop-ups, I've been able to really connect with my Peruvian heritage and 
one of the awesome things about doing these pop-ups is that we always end our meals on a sweet note. And my mm -hmm. girlfriend, Julie, is from Georgia and she's American. And when we talk about these desserts and we start that conversation of like, what does a Peruvian dessert look like when we start incorporating her background and her culture into it? And then, you know, we'll come up with, for example, one of our dishes that we did, mazamorra, arroz con leche, which is a, a very typical Peruvian dessert, which is rice pudding and this pudding made with purple corn. And we were like, how can we present it in a way that's going to be approachable for people, you know, so they can understand it. And as we get that conversation going, it was like, well, why don't we make the rice pudding into an ice cream and then we'll make the purple corn pudding into a sort of a cobbler situation. And mm. yeah, now we're looking at the food that we're doing as like, it's Peruvian, but it's influenced by our, where we are, you know, our location. Can we talk a little bit about the name of your pop-up? What does it mean? La Chingana was a name that I found in one of my rabbit hole searches on Peruvian food history. And I came up on this definition where it means a hole in the wall. So same way that we speak of like mm -hmm. fondas or, or in, in Peru, we call them huariques. You know, they're, they're just little establishments um, where you can go and get great food. Now, the La Chingana name is actually from the colonial times. And it was sort of like a speakeasy, you know, it was a notorious place for people to go and get, you know, alcohol or booze or whatever they had available at that time. And it just stuck with me. I've always appreciated the past and I've always been drawn to it. So I, I thought, A, it just sounded cool and, and B, it, it helped define what we were, which is, you know, we don't have a face yet. You know, we're working towards having a brick and mortar. And for now, we are just, you know, just a hole in the wall. Will you try to keep the name when you do have a brick and mortar? A little tribute to your roots? I think so. Yeah. That's great. Good. So you talk a lot about highlighting history and culture within the food mm -hmm. that you served. How is that presented to people? Um, when we do these dinners, I'll talk about each course that we're doing and what the inspiration was for each one. And I'm pulling a lot from memories of going to visit my family. I go once a year if you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and I'm speaking with Arnaldo Castillo, the seasoned Atlanta executive chef that has recently launched his own pop-up, La Chingana. If someone was unfamiliar with Peruvian cuisine, how do you describe the palate to a newcomer? I would say it's fresh and vibrant and spicy from the ajis and the seasonings are all these, what you'd categorize as like warm spices because we use a lot of cloves and cinnamon and cumin. And it's rich and hearty food that I like to say it's soul food, you know, mm -hmm. especially when I go to Buda, it's the dishes that I always want to have when I'm there are going to be these slow cooked meats or these braises. And they just really show me what the food of that region is like, you know, like my godparents have owned this restaurant, sort of like a cafe in Buda for the last, I want to say 40 years. Haven't changed the menu. It's turkey sandwiches and chifles, which is plantain chips. And there's other, you know, like tamal verde and all these other components. And they haven't changed the menu at all in 40 years. And it is, it's still delicious. Every time I go, I have, I try to have the same thing and it just, it's just warming. It's just good food, you know? And that's how I like to present Peruvian food. There's so many iconic dishes from all over the country. And 
every time I do a dinner, I just try to pick the ones and sort of introduce them in a way that's approachable for them. Well, you mentioned the meats. Can we talk about seafood and ceviche? Yeah, of course. I, you know, I, when I decided to do the pop-up and and leave my job that I was at for the last four years, I was like, I'm leaving at a time that we'll, we're going to get into the summer. And what's a better way to have ceviche than on a hot day with a cold beer? And that's usually how I like to present it. I'll find whatever fish is freshest and I'll do a leche de tigre, which is a, a marinade that's composed of taking some stock, some lime juice, and then the fish scraps that you took from the fish that you're going to make a ceviche out of. And then you blitz all that up in a blender. And then that's sort of your marinade, you know, but ceviche is also a very regional dish in Peru and Lima. It'll typically be something along the lines of a leche de tigre, but in the North where my mom's from and where they say the best ceviche is from, (laughs) um, all they're going to do is just use the lime juice. You know, there's a city called Chulucanas, and they're known for being a lime growing region. And they say that those are the best limes. So all they need is just some fresh lime juice and some salt and that's it. And a, and a good fresh fish. That's amazing. Um, what is the cooking chemistry behind ceviche? How, how do you end up with cooked food from limes? Yeah, we, we say cook because it'll, the lime will cure the fish and it'll change the, um, the bite of the actual flesh. So it'll be it won't be that raw sushi-like taste, but mm-hmm. it'll be a little bit more dense. And, you know, it all depends on how long you leave the fish in the marinade. You know, in Peru, you typically want to do, you know, three to five minutes and it's sitting in a bowl and then you, you're, it's ready to eat. One of the things I learned by being the executive chef at a Mexican restaurant was the ceviches in Mexico are, it's a way longer cooking time. I mean, we're talking about hours where the fish will just sit and just cook in that marinade. And then you eat it with typically as a dip, you know, there's chips served alongside. That's one of the things I've learned is when I'm explaining what a Peruvian ceviche is, we don't use a a chip. We'll use either a fork or preferably a spoon because you want to get not only some fish in your spoon, but some of that fried concha corn. You want to get some of that sweet potato. You want to get the red onions or you want to get some of that marinade. And that's typically how we'll eat it when I go home and I'm hanging out with the family, you know, we'll just serve a big platter of it. And everyone is trying to tip the platter so you can get some of that marinade. <laughs> Ceviche varies throughout Latin America, you know, in Mexico, they'll, they'll cook the fish longer in Peru, they'll do it shorter, but it just varies on regionally, you know? I'm really glad you mentioned that. I've always been curious about the difference in regions of ceviche because it is one of my all-time favorite dishes. One of my all-time favorite cocktails is a pisco sour. Is having cocktails something you're looking forward to with the brick and mortar? Yes, for sure. For sure. But as much as I love pisco, I love rum a lot too. And you know, there's a region where they grow a lot of sugarcane in Peru. And and I feel like rum is one of those spirits that's it gets overshadowed, obviously, by the Pisco because that's the national spirit. But have you ever had a Chilcano? I don't think so. So a Chilcano is a cocktail made with Pisco, ginger ale, ice, and just a splash of lime. And it's going to be like the freshest and quickest way to be able to enjoy Pisco on a hot day, you know? While I love Pisco sours, they're a little bit time-consuming. There's a lot more technique behind it, whereas mm-hmm. a Chilcano is just, is, is just a couple of pours on a glass and you're good to go. And that's what we did at one of my last dinners. And I was able to just pull from this memory where my cousin came to my parents' house once I had arrived from 
from Atlanta and, you know, he, he had a can of peaches and then a bottle of Pisco and some ginger ale and he would just pour everything in a glass and that was it. You know, it was quick and easy and you're able to appreciate the, the Pisco. Oh yeah. That sounds super refreshing. Yeah. Pisco itself is great, you know, as a, as a building block for creating different cocktails and adding different fruit, pulled juices to it and just kind of creating your own. And so at this last pop-up, you know, we used some, some local peaches and I feel like that was another instance where we were able to integrate something that's regional and from the area and blending it with proven ingredients to have something that is, you know, Peruvian in Georgia. Sounds so good. So when's your next pop-up? Yeah, right now we will announce on our Instagram page at chingana.atl. And that's where we'll announce dates. And then something else that we're working on is is doing meal kits sort of to go where the people that aren't able to make our course dinners, they'll be able to, you know, shoot me a message and purchase one of these meal kits where we'll have three to four courses, depending on what's available and, and people can purchase that and enjoy it in the comfort of their own home. You know, we really should elaborate on what the pop-up experience is like, because pop-up is such a commonly used term now that can mean so many different things to so many different Mm -hmm. establishments. What type of experience am I going to have if I'm able to make it to a pop-up of yours? There's two kinds of pop-ups. There's a sit-down pop-up dinner, and then there's the a la carte experience. And I've done both. I try to do both at least once a month. So you can get the experience of coming in and the a la carte experience and you'll just sort of take a look at the menu and you get what you like, you know? And so it's not as time consuming for you uh, because when we do the dinners, you know, it's a two hour experience where you'll be able to come in, sit down and try to have some beverage pairings. And I get to talk and be more connected with the uh, audience, you know, and talk a little bit more about the dishes and inspiration and where the ingredients are from and then a lot of um, information that I'm like putting out there and hopefully not not too much you know I don't want to <laughs> overwhelm people but it but just gives a me a lot to say there's a lot to say of course <laughs> and you know you want to you want to make it approachable you know I always revert back to this dish called causa which is a mashed potato dish that we do and it has a very rich historical context to the dish and I remember the first time I introduced it to my girlfriend Julie and she took her first bite and she was like, oh, it's like a potato salad. And I was like, well, no, there's a lot more to it than that. But it really is just a potato salad, you know, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> there, there's a lot of flavors and components to it. You know, it's a layered potato salad, so to speak. And that's the way that when I put it on the menu now, I'll always say like, it's your proven grandma's potato salad. And that's sort of the goal here that something that I've been learning while I've been doing these pop-ups is sometimes it's just easier to just kind of tone it down a little bit and just make it approachable for people to understand what Peruvian food is in regards to a specific dish, you know? What type of establishments are you hosting the pop-ups in? I've been lucky that, you know, I've been in this, in the industry here in Atlanta for over 10 years. So I've had a lot of, um, a lot of peers reach out and, and offer their establishment. So it could be whether at a small breakfast joint or it could be at a brewery or it could be at a full sit down restaurant, you know, wherever people are able to make a little room for us to just sort of pop in and host these dinners or these a la carte pop-ups is where you'll find us. How many people can you serve on one evening? Typically we do 20 to 25 people and it'll be myself, my girlfriend, Julie, because she's sort of the 
she's not sort of she is the pastry chef for La Chingana <laughs> uh, even though she's a Darn full-time tutor. nurse right <laughs> even though she's a full-time nurse I, I've sort of been like hey what do you think about this and then still she's just great at it I mean she's just been knocking home runs every time and you know I'll, I'll reach out to other peers and we'll staff up and we'll be able to you know take care of 20 to 25 people at a time and have a smooth service so to speak that's wonderful. So Arnaldo, how has your life changed since you left Monero and are now pursuing this? It's been a constant hustle because it's different going from, you know, managing a million dollar restaurant to, you know, to staffing, to doing schedules and orderings and all the other logistical components of running a restaurant of that caliber versus doing this pop-up. But that was sort of my training ground, you know, I, I got to learn so much about not only managing, but about leadership and fine tuning my work ethic. So now that when I do my pop ups, I try to approach it the same way, you know, like, how can we get better? And what do I need to change and tweak here and there? But to be honest, man, it's been very fulfilling. Like, I'm happier. I have time for my significant other. I have time for my dogs. I have time to breathe a little bit more and it definitely took some time to adjust you know like being on a set schedule to just sort of having all this I not want to say free time but just having all this time to now like develop this idea and then you know work towards the goal of being a brick and mortar but there's no rush you know right now it's about fine-tuning this idea and and fine-tuning the dishes that we get to share with the folks here in Atlanta and you know just finding out what people are enjoying about it I think that's that's the fulfilling part right now. Arnaldo Castillo executive chef and owner of the Peruvian pop-up La Chingana that was from our conversation last summer. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. And coming up, Emory's Jazz Fest is starting today. And City Lights host Lois Reitzitz recently got the scoop. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it's great to have you along. Emory's Jazz Fest returns this week with free lectures, master classes, and concerts. The events begin today and run through Saturday, February 5th. The acclaimed guitarist and Grammy Award-nominated artist Raul Midon is a guest soloist performing with the Gary Motley Trio. If you're not familiar with Gary Motley, he's also the director of Emory's Jazz Studies program, and he and Madon recently spoke to Lois via Zoom. Motley began with a quick history of the festival. We actually had Dave Brubeck at the university doing a residency in 2002. In fact, that concert that uh, he did was the last concert that we had in Glen Memorial Church because that was our primary performance venue. It was a wonderful opportunity to collaborate with him. It was the first of that type of collaboration and they were very supportive. So consequently, when we launched the Schwartz Center in 2003, I, along with the center director, Bob McKay, talked about the idea of having this residency where we invited national artists uh, to come in to perform with me because of my ties to the industry at that time. 
And we started that initiative. The main thing that we wanted to do, in addition to the artists being here, was giving the students access to these artists and the community. So uh, the community engagement component really took off. The students were really enjoying this, and we've had quite the track record. So I'm excited that uh, next year we'll mark the 20th anniversary of the residency program. Yes. So congratulations are in order to the Schwartz Center, as well as the Emory Jazz Fest. Raul, I was curious about when you were first introduced to the guitar. In our house, there was a guitar. I grew up in rural New Mexico, so we were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And I always say that if we had had a piano, I probably would have played piano. But what we had was a, a little guitar, so that's what I started to get interested in. My father has an incredible eclectic record collection. So I was drawn to music at a very, very early age and the guitar was was there. And my father noted that interest. And so uh, he had a restaurant at the time that featured flamenco shows uh, all summer long, every, every summer. Ooh. He got me the lessons with the guitarists from the show every summer since I was about six years old. How exciting. I read that you have collaborated with legendary artists such as Herbie Hancock, Bill Withers, and Stevie Wonder. Can you tell us something about some of those collaborations? All of them sort of came about in a sort of serendipitous way. With Herbie Hancock, I think uh, this was for the documentary that he did and the record called Possibilities. I think the idea was to have a bunch of different artists collaborate with him. And and he had had the idea to have Stevie Wonder sing and play on the album. And for whatever reason, Stevie said, I will play, but I won't sing. And I think maybe his album was coming out. I don't know who knows why. But so I was kind of the, well, we can get another blind guy. (laughs) That's what I think. And the guys that were making the documentary had also just made my video for my debut major label record. So they they said, you know, would would you want to do this? And and they sent me the the track that they were going to have me sing over. And it was, I just called to say, I love you. But it was an extremely different version, uh, very reharmonized and in a much higher key. And uh, I thought, wow, this is going to be really hard. It's, it was really, uh, I, if, if anybody hasn't heard that track, it came out amazingly. But it, uh, I, I got into the studio and I started to sing it kind of like Stevie Wonder would sing it, but it was a slower version. And I started to hear kind of a, a mixed, let, let us say, to be charitable. Uh, they weren't, you know, really liking it. And uh, I, I was working with uh, Arif Martin at the time, and we brought his son in kind of for support. I was living in New York, and we said, hey, come just, just to hang out with us because, you know, I'm doing this thing with Herbie. And so my, our friend Joe said, hey, mute L.A. for a second because uh, Herbie and Stevie were in L.A. And, and he comes into the studio and he says to me, Raul, this is I just called to say I love you and the girl's not home. Oh. And I said, oh, wow, this is the sad version of this song. Oh. And so I, I began to sing it completely differently. No New Year's Day 
to celebrate, you know, completely differently as opposed to no New Year's Day, you know, that, that kind of Stevie Wonder thing. And that turned out to be the track. And it was a really amazing collaboration. No New Year's Day. That was Stevie and Herbie all in one <laughs> in one take. My goodness, you are so good-natured about the tokenistic, let's find another blind musician. But people tend to stereotype yes, indeed. being blind with having a greater affinity for music or even going so far as to say being Without the sense of sight, your ear is greater. Do you do you believe there's anything to that? Absolutely, one hundred percent. No, you know most good musicians that I know can see. So I think you know the only thing blindness does, perhaps, is to give you a focus because you know you you're a lot less options when you're blind. You can't do the backup job. Anything that you do, anything in life that you do as a blind person is 10 times harder. So it means that you can't say, well, I'll do music and I'll, you know, bust tables on the side. You can't do that. You don't have that option. So it makes, it gives you sort of this focus that, okay, if I'm going to do music, then I better really do it. And then you realize not only do you have to really do it, but you also have to be the gig because, as a blind person, as a, as a blind sideman, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting gigs because I don't care if you're good, if it's a choice between hiring the blind guy who you have to give a ride to or hiring the sighted guy who can get himself to the gig, you're going to lose every time. So the, some of the realities come through and it, it may make you work harder, but it doesn't make you a better musician. Okay, I appreciate that. Gary, you developed the Robert Strickland Jazz Studio at Henry. Would you tell us more about it? Early on in my life, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. So I started school with that kind of idea in mind. I've always tinkered with electronics and been uh, a fan of that sort of thing. And I got uh, bitten by the jazz bug, if you will and decided that I wanted to pursue music, but always kept my interest in technology. And so as a part of the different things that I was doing at the university, I uh, pitched them the idea of using technology as a way of teaching tr traditional jazz. And we started building out this prototype for, for using everything from, from online resources to digital recording uh, software and all to teach our students about traditional jazz. And that was two worlds that at the time when we started were not completely interfacing with each other. Yeah, you were way ahead of the curve. That's an amazing thing. I, I didn't know because uh, that, that is exactly my interest as well. I've been producing and engineering my own records now for a while. 
I think these days for musicians, it's just doubly important for musicians to have a grasp of being able to record themselves. It's not that difficult these days. And it's the entry point in terms of economics is not prohibitive the way that it was, you know, 20 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, it's much more affordable now. You know, the recent uh, trends that we've had with uh, with Omicron and, and the whole Corona situation, yeah. putting everybody at home, it's really to your advantage if you know how to do this. And, you know, one of the fun things last year, we used technology to put an 18-piece big band together virtually, and people are going, how do you do this? But the technology made it, you know, possible for us for us to do that. So yeah, we started, uh, I started the Strickland Jazz Studio in 2008, and we have been using that with our students ever since. It's a great way for them to come together. If we have a situation like this where we have to be remote, then we're able to get things recorded and put things together. So yeah, it's been really a game changer for us. And and in this case, it's been a lifesaver, even in preparing for this jazz festival with the big band. We could not meet in person for the last three weeks, so we have literally done our rehearsals online uh, using new technology. demonstrations and master classes you will be offering. Will these be in person? These will be in person. They will be at the Schwartz Center in the Emerson Concert Hall. Raul and I and the other members of the trio, which will be um, Clarence Penn on drums and Edwin Livingston on bass, will do a master class with Raul. And so the students and other people who want to attend this class, which is free, We'll have an opportunity to to talk to Raul and glean any insights that he wants to share. And we'll all collectively, you know, support in that endeavor and, and just have kind of a lecture demonstration. We'll do some talking and playing and and go from there. On Saturday morning, the rhythm section with Clarence, uh, Edwin and myself will do a rhythm section masterclass that musicians can attend. Again, it's also open to the public where we'll talk about various aspects of what it is that we do. Of course, Friday night, we will have our concert with Raul. On Saturday night, we will have a concert with uh, the big band. And uh, Clarence and Edwin will join us on Saturday night for the big band. Oh, very exciting. What are some of the songs you will play? I'm a songwriter, kind of an anomaly in jazz in a sense. Although I, of course understand and know standards but that's not really my thing my thing is to to be a songwriter with a jazz sensibility i guess we're going to be doing some of those songs a a song called wings of mine that is on my uh, badass and blind record which is grammy nominated Ecstasy And you're free 
I, I recorded those, some of those tunes with uh, some really great, great musicians, uh, Nicholas Payton and um, Gregory Hutchison. And so we're going to be doing some of that. And then I'm going to be doing uh, mostly my original songs from different albums, including uh, the last one from 2020, The Mirror. you about that. You released your album, The Mirror, on March 13th of 2020, the day the nation shut down for the COVID-19 emergency. Mm -hmm. Beautiful timing. Oh, well, let's say people had more time to listen. You know, everyone was indoors. You know, in retrospect, I mean, I think we have to move forward. I mean, it was, it was, I had a, a whole year of promotion booked I was going to South by Southwest so it, it was very much a tragedy in a sense <laughs> but also you know I uh, I've got a new album that I did uh, during the pandemic with uh, a duo album of nothing but guitar and so that's going to be coming out and it's going to be I've got great guitarists including Mike Stern and uh, Lionel Lueke who plays with Herbie Hancock all original music all duet guitar uh, stuff so we all had a chance to stop and, you know, we do a lot of running around as touring musicians. I mean, it's a little more than I bargained for, but I really like being at home because I have a recording studio and I come down here every day and work. So, One of the songs on The Mirror, that album that released on March 13th of 2020, one of those songs is A Certain Cafe. Oh, yes. And it's about how time seems to stop in yes. specific moments, and you never forget that moment. Does that song have new meaning for you now? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, the, the whole aspect of time, in a way, that was inspired. I read a, a book by Thomas Mann a long time ago called... Um, the Magic Mountain. Oh, and, and that book is all about time and, and how time seems to go at different speeds, depending on what you're doing. You know, the idea of time, in a way, time is a, is a human construct, you know, anyway, right? So yeah, that and that was with, uh, with, with the great Joe Locke as well. So I really enjoyed that. I just realized, of course, Magic Mountain had to do with Another, well, I don't know, was it a pandemic or epidemic? Yes, tuberculosis. absolutely. Yeah. Tuberculosis. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, you just, I just made that connection when you mentioned it, but uh, that is exactly right. They were all there because they had a TB. Yeah. Gary, you've been a part of Emory's Jazz Festival for well over two decades now. 
What's been your biggest enjoyment of the festival over the years? I think the biggest one for me been that generosity of spirit. You know, sometimes in the jazz community, we get into this thing about the state of affairs and, and it's not always a kind of a positive commentary or response, but we have a responsibility to share this music. If we want it to continue in the future, we've got to give it to the kids and we also have to share with the community. So it's being able to present people and present artists in this way that's been the biggest joy for me and to share the stage with people that I admired and have tremendous respect for. Artist Gary Motley, director of Emory's Jazz Studies program and guitarist, singer-songwriter Raul Madan, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Performances for Emory's Jazz Fest begin today and run through Saturday, February 5th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the world premiere of Without Regard to Sex, Race, or Color, a Black History concert happening this Sunday at Georgia Tech's First Center for the Arts. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I invite you to connect with us on social media. You can find us at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.